Well, let me tell you a little bit about what is going on. Before I get there, uh, if you have a Bible, turn, in, uh, turn there to Colossians. It's in the New Testament. We're working our way through the book of Colossians, written by Paul. Uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll be there all of today. Colossians 1, and we'll start in uh, verse 15. But let me tell you a little bit about what's going on here coming in the fall. Um, one of our, I guess, guiding values is partnership. And what you will not see with the Church of King Bay is a whole lot of, we won't do a whole lot of church events that are geared specifically for the Church of King Bay Orchestra. Uh, what you will see is a lot of uh, partnership with other organizations within our community and within our city to begin to bless and serve our city. And, and so I want to tell you about a couple of those things. This week on Saturday, we're partnering with Chick-fil-A. Anybody like Chick-fil-A? <laughs> there it is. You don't want any more chicken. Okay, so uh, anyway, this weekend, Chick-fil-A is actually having a movie night, and they've asked us, the Church of King Bay, to come out and help them with it. Uh, we're going to be have, we'll have their sound system and the projector and, and all that stuff, and they're, they're bringing all the food, which is great. Uh, but on Saturday night at the Goose Creek Chick-fil-A, we are, uh, we're just the ones that are going to be coming and serving them, which they're going to be serving probably hundreds, if not a thousand people. And so uh, come on, come on out. The event starts at 5. Our tech team will be there earlier. Uh, we'll have a tent with information. If you want to come out and uh, just be a face for the Church of Cane Bay, we'd love for you to do that. We have t-shirts that you can wear uh, and shake people's hands and, and tell them that you would love to see them out here on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock. Uh, so that's just one way that we're partnering. Another big way, actually, that we're partnering with the school is they're having their fall family fun night. I think that's what it's called. Uh, November 5th, which is, um, I think it's the Saturday after Halloween. Uh, they are putting on a great thing out in the parking lot for all of their students and for all their teachers and all those families. And we are just coming alongside of them to say, hey, we love you, we care for you, we're investing in it financially, and we want to just provide a ton of volunteers too. And so that's just a great way that you can uh, get plugged in. So that's November 5th. And then the big one coming in December, uh, in December, and this is really cool, and I'm pretty excited about this. Uh, we're doing some, something called Christmas at Cane Bay, and it's very much on the, um, if you came to our egg drop, it's kind of in that same flavor, out in the field in Old Rice Retreat. Uh, we're bringing in a guy who's going to blow 15 tons of real snow out onto the field. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to construct this huge slide and blow the snow all over the place, and it actually will stick amazingly, and, uh, and kids are going to roll down that slide, we're going to have a petting zoo and Santa and all sorts of stuff, just to say we love this community. We're partnering with Syntex, one of the builders out there, and they've given, they financially given to this to make it happen. Um, and so that's just, it's coming up, you'll see a lot more details about that, uh, but it's a huge event for us to come and bless our city and bless this community in a big way, so we want you uh, to be involved with this. Um, anyway. Moving on to Colossians real quick. In, in your Bibles, this is like the passage, I think I, I could really put my foot down on this. This is the passage that I really love. And I, I think if I was to die, and I hope I don't die anytime soon, but if I did, this is the passage that I would want read and preached on my funeral. Like it is such a rich, great passage about, not because it's about me, but because it's about the greatness of God and who he is and how amazing Jesus has uh, transformed his creation. It's a beautiful picture. And so, uh, really, it preaches itself, so I just want to read it. Uh, and read along with me, and it'll be up on the screen. Colossians 1, verse 15. It says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, 
in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray again. Father, I know that you are great and glorious and you have created all things that are beautiful. That, Father, that you wrote this passage for us today so that we might be able to transform our hearts around it and its truth. Not that we can conform this scripture to our lives, but that we would be the ones who transform because of what you have done in our lives. I know that it's truthful. I know that it's perfect. Father, I pray um, that you would be the one who transforms hearts and not me. That my words would fall to the ground, but your words would just come into the hearts of people. Father, we love you. We give glory to your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. The, uh, the best part of uh, family get-togethers. <clears throat> family get-togethers when you uh, say Christmas or Thanksgiving or Easter or something, something big like that. Somebody tell me, what is the best part of getting together? Turkey. <laughs> awesome. Food, right? You actually guessed right. I'm impressed with that. All right. How many guesses? Family relationship? No, it's it's the food, right? We always like everybody comes around the smells and the food, the thing that that mom cooks the best. Everybody has that uh, person maybe in their family who is the cook and who, who creates masterpieces. And everyone's looking forward to uh, whatever dish mom, mom's going to create. You know, sweet potato souffle at Thanksgiving or something like that. And you're just looking forward to this great uh, this this great dish. For mine at Christmas. Uh, my mom makes this wonderful baked French toast. It's so good. Um, it's a party in your mouth. You know, I mean, it, it is. Uh, it, it's just cinnamon and gooey goodness. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. Strawberries, blueberries, just, you know, and it, it makes me salivate just, just thinking about this wonderful dish. And, it, you know, it, we come to a place where like, I love my mom's cooking, I love my grandma's cooking, I love my dad's cooking, and uh, he just puts everything together so masterfully, and it's beautiful. And some of you watch the Food Channel, and you're you know, watching Chopped, or whatever you watch, and it's like, it's amazing how these people come together, they put together these masterful dishes. Um, but have you ever thought about, just, just think for a second, think back to like the farmhouse, and uh, you know, the dad who harvests the crops, and then grandma or you know, mom is the one who takes all of the crops and, and fixes dinner. And can you imagine, if you, if you will, like coming to their house uh, for uh, Christmas morning or something like that, mom has created this great meal, and everybody just starts doting on mom. 
Mom, thank you for making this great meal. It's a beautiful meal. Your, your tomatoes are so, just, oh, so exquisite, so beautiful, so awesome. And like, you imagine the heart of a farmer? Like, moms probably spent you know, a couple hours on these dishes. What's the heart of the farmer? I've spent months, you know, preserving and sustaining these crops. I was the one who planted them. I was the one who watched them grow. I was the one who watered them, fertilized them. I was the one who harvested them and took care of them for months, weeks on end. And it was a, it's a great thing. And then all the praise goes to the mom for just taking what was harvested and just kind of mixing them up together. I think a lot of us do this in, in our own lives, and I think the picture that, that Paul wants us to get here is let's go back to the beginning. I mean, can you imagine if you, if you went to an art gallery, it, just a great art gallery, you see this beautiful masterpiece, and you start thinking, isn't that a beautiful picture? And imagine, imagine if the artist was standing right next to you, and, uh, and you're just like, that is such a beautiful picture, the colors, everything is amazing. And, and the painter's like right there, and he's like, yeah, that's, um, that's my creation. You're like, I don't care, I love painting. The painting is great. Isn't the painting exquisite? Isn't the painting amazing? And the painter's like, well, yeah, I, mean, I painted it. I don't care about you. I care about the painting. That doesn't make any sense. Are we the, are we the, the painting? Or do we, do we glorify the painting? Or do we glorify the painter? Do we, um, do we praise the person who just mixes up the, the recipe? Or do we actually give praise to the person who or even a step further. The farmer didn't even make anything grow. But the creator of everything made it grow. Ultimately. So what, what Paul is getting back to in this passage, which is actually a beautiful language, and most, uh, many, most theologians would agree that this, that this passage right here is an actual hymn uh, from the early church. And Paul is simply, uh, this is something that they would sing in church, uh, which is awesome. And so he gets to this... Um, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So he wants to get back, not to the creation. He doesn't want to talk about what has been made. He wants to get back to the creator, not the creation. Because most of us dote and we glorify things that have been made, not the person who actually made them. And so today, I only want to focus on one main thing. What is the role of the creation, and what is the role of the creator? And how can we put those things into their proper place in our life? Because if we get those two things mixed up, if we put the creation at the primary place, the throne of our life, then we've got it mixed up. However, if we put the creator on the throne of our life, things are going to be significantly better. So let's talk about this passage real quick. It says in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Who's he? He is Jesus. Paul is talking about the Savior of the world. Here's, here's a little bit about Jesus. And you, some of you might know this, but this is just a quick bio. Jesus, um, 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born uh, into a very dumpy pig town. I mean, I think all the stories we make it, we glorify it a little bit, makes it look really good. But, I mean, we're talking Bethlehem and Nazareth. And we're, we're talking about very small, uh, I mean, they wouldn't even have a stoplight if they were around today. Dirty, dusty, broken down, little tiny, tiny town. Uh, he was born to an unwed mother, uh, adopted eventually by his earthly father, uh, spent the majority of his life in obscurity, 
uh, 30 years to invest, and about 90% of his life he was relatively unknown, swinging a hammer. He was a carpenter. That's all he did for most of his life. At 30 years old, he came out preaching, teaching, healing, and hanging out with sinners. And eventually he declared himself to be God, to which he then was executed. Um, Jesus' resume looks a little bit like this. He never traveled more than a few hundred miles away from home. He never held political office. He was never married, and therefore he never had any kids. He never wrote a book. He never went to college. And he died homeless and poor. But yet, somehow, nonetheless, Jesus is the most prominent figure in all of history. H.G. Wells said this. Uh, he's a futurist. Um, came up with some really cool ideas ahead of his time. He said this. I am a, I am a historian. I am not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. This is Napoleon Bonaparte, what he said about Jesus. I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. I have found my empire upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Fidel Castro said this about him. I have always considered Christ to be one of the greatest revolutionaries in the history of humanity. And my favorite, um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was a great preacher about uh, one of my heroes, said this. Christ is the great central fact of the world's history. To him, everything looks forward or backward. All the lines of history converge upon him. All the great purposes of God culminate upon him. Jesus is a big deal. <laughs> you know, he is a big deal. A lot of times, like, there's a lot of people in this world, and I want to give these people a lot of mercy. And they're like, you know, I, you know, Jesus was a good guy. I'm glad that he was around and he taught a lot of great things. And he probably did a lot of great things. But I don't really think he's for me. I really don't think it's a big deal. I agree with the whole God aspect, but do I have to follow this Jesus? Is there is there something more significant about Jesus than anything else? And so Paul wants to clarify this because the Colossian church was battling against people who were coming against Jesus' divinity. They were saying Jesus didn't have uh, exactly, he wasn't who he says he was, or he certainly wasn't what the disciples say he was. And so we're not going to, uh, you know, we're not going to believe that Jesus is exactly who he is. And so we're going to change it up again. We're going to change it up a little bit and go back just kind of a, a God thing. We're not really going to focus on Jesus at all. We're going to take away his divinity or his Godness. We're going to take that away from him. And so what Paul is looking at in the Colossian church is saying, no, 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 no. Let's get back to facts here. Let's go back to the field. Let's go back to the farmer. You guys are playing around with the creation and mixing things up. Let's go back to the harvest. Let's go back to where things are farmed. Let's go back to the primary source. And I'll tell you exactly who Jesus is. Not only is he a man that... that um, that came 2,000 years ago in flesh and blood and did amazing things and then he died on a sinner's cross and then was resurrected. Although all of that stuff is great and true and, and wonderful and it changes our life, let me tell you more about who Jesus is. And that, this, that's what this passage is about. So let's dig into this. This is the best picture, I think, in Scripture of the creator. Creation. 
The image of God, this is, uh, he picks up on this language from Genesis 1, the image of God. Uh, Genesis 1 says that, that we as human beings were created in the image of God, meaning that if, if he were to come to earth, we would look like him. Amazingly enough, I mean, I'm not sure how many years spanned between the creation and when Jesus came, but thousands of years, and God knew exactly why he created us in his image, because he knew that Jesus would come and bear that same image. It's amazing foreknowledge of who he is, created humans in his image, knowing that, we, that one day he would be among them. God is omniscient. He knows things. He knows everything. And so when he created the world, he fully had a plan for when Jesus would be a part of that world. And then, of course, in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, you might look at that and say, I, Jesus was born. He was the firstborn. Does that mean that he, there, there was at some point where he did not exist? No, that's not true. Jesus has always existed. The rest of the scripture uh, tells truth to that. Uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have universally and eternally existed. So why does it say that he was the firstborn? Well, the readers of Colossians, um, or the readers at Colossae would have understood this to be firstborn, meaning he is prominent, that he sits in the first seat, that there is the Father and the Son, and it gives him a certain, it gives him authority over the creation. It's not that he was born at some point, it was just that he has complete authority over what he has created. And it's a great picture of who Jesus is and gives him a place of prominence. Um, and then it says this, and it says this actually twice, which is great. For by him, all things were created. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him. So here's the deal. He's going to use three words. He's going to say that Jesus, that Jesus the world was created by Jesus, that all things were created by Jesus. He's going to say that things were created through Jesus, and then, he's, and then he's going to come back at the end and say that all things were created for Jesus, which is just interesting all in itself. So you have Jesus, that things were created by Jesus, meaning he is the producer. Think of it as a movie set. He is the producer. He is the first one. He's the one who creates the product, right? Not only is he the creator or producer of the product, he is the channel, because it says that Jesus Everything was created through him. So imagine if, if, I guess I always think of it as a long tube or a messenger or an active servant or um, I guess some kind of action agent. Not only does he create it, he is actually the action agent that makes it happen. He didn't use anybody else for creation. He's the producer and he's the one who delivers that system. So who is who then is the, I guess, the audience? This is where our minds need to wrap around this. It says all things were created through him and for him. Through him and for him. So he's the producer. He is the conduit or active agent. And it's also for him. It's created for him. And that's going to play a trick on our brain because most of us have an idea. We live our life as if God created. He did send it to us, but it's for us. That actually, Paul is saying that creation was made for Jesus, that Jesus created things for himself. And that ultimately, he is to get the praise and the glory for what he has created. 
And that might sound really selfish. <laughs> I mean, to me, when I first read it, I'm like, that just seems like Jesus is a jerk. You know, like, he's just arrogant. Why would you create something and then keep it for yourself? Well, can you imagine for a second my, my, um, my family had the great experience when I was much, much younger. My dad was a builder, and so he decided that he wanted to build a home in the Florida Keys, which is fantastic and wonderful, on the water. Right? And my dad bought the land, you know, worked hard to you know, get the money to buy the land. He was the producer. Every weekend, I remember for years, every weekend my dad would go and build the house almost by himself. It was very rare that he actually bought, brought someone with him. Only when he actually needed someone did he bring. So for years, my dad not only produced this idea, so he had the finances, but then he actually was the one who built it. And then at the end, when it all was done, it was for him. It was for our family. He produced it, he made it, and then it was for him. That was the, that was the story. But here's the great part. At the end of the building of that process, we had a great party. And everyone kind of came in. All of our friends. It was an amazing opportunity. And through the years, we have brought in so many people to that home to share in it, have relationship in it, to, to have a good time, to do counseling, to do retreat. I mean, of that, that small house in Key Largo, Florida has made, um, has made so many marriages better, amazingly enough, has made... Um, you know, childhood better has, has just created so much fun and family environment that they just they open it up to everyone to come in even though it's not theirs but it's still used for great relationship and so in the same way I'm going to look at okay, I know it's kind of a flawed illustration but think about the, the creation in that way that Jesus is the producer he's also the active agent and it's for him. Ultimately, creation is for him. But the great part, and how Jesus is not a jerk, and how he's not arrogant, how he's not selfish, is that he wants to take this creation that he has created, and he doesn't want to just give it to us and say, see you later, I'm out of here. He wants us to join in with it. He wants a relationship with it. And not only that, we're the ones who stand outside of the creation and just throw rocks at it because we're sinful and evil beings, and we don't even like it. We're the ones who stand outside the house and say, your house is awful. And then Jesus does an amazing thing. He comes out and says, I want you to come in. I want you to be a part of my home. I want you to be a part of what I've created. Will you come in and be a part of this? And I will have a relationship with you. So it's by Jesus, he's the producer. Through Jesus, he has made it. And it's for him, ultimately. And he wants us to share in that relationship with him. Um, and this is cool, and this is, my, this is one of my favorite parts of the, of the passage. Verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And in him all things hold together. Imagine, like, put yourself into that, into that verse. And he is before Charlie. And in him, Charlie is held together. What's your name in that sentence for a second? What is your name? Travis. He is before Travis, and Travis is held together. What's your name in that sentence? You are part of the created order. You're part of that. So what does that mean? He holds you together. He does this at a, uh, at a very much of a macro level. 
Uh, you don't have to turn here, you just listen at a macro level, a big, big level. In Psalm 147, verse 2 through 4, it says this, The Lord builds up Jerusalem, he gathers the outcasts of Israel, he heals the broken, uh, the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Get this, he determines the number of stars and he gives them all their names. So on a big, 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 big picture, God is holding things together, is literally holding the universe together. Scientists are still finding out more and more about the universe. And just it just keeps on going. They keep on saying that the universe is expanding. The amazing thing is it's already always been there. God has created a majestic thing, and we're just finding out about it. It's like, man, I don't know how the, the universe is expanding. It's because the creator keeps on being creative. It's not like he stops being creative. He keeps going. He is the creator, and he's going to continue to create. Think about that at a macro level. And not only does he continue and say, I'm just going to let it go, see you later, peace out. He's going to keep it all together and holds it in the palm of his hand. That is how powerful our creator is. Not only is that, but he is also on a very personal level. In Psalm 137, it says this, O Lord, you have searched me, and you know you have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my past and my, my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. So some of you think that, that God is very distant. Yes, he holds the universe together, but he doesn't know me. And Psalm 137 says specifically, the Lord knows when you lie down and when you get up. He knows your thoughts. He's very personal in relationship. He's the owner of that house when he says, come on in. I want to know you. I want to have dinner with you. I want to sit down on the couch and spend time with you. This is the creator of the universe that wants a personal relationship with you. It's very personal, and it's also on a micro level. Um, and, and this is a very great passage from the mouth of Jesus. It says, Matthew 10, 29, are, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs on your head are all numbered. All, are all numbered. It's all numbered. Big, micro, uh, big macro scale holds the universe together. He also knows our thoughts. He knows what we do. He knows when we sit down, when we, when, uh, when we get up. He also knows the hairs on our head. That's an amazing creator. That makes sense. When I was a kid, I used to like, you know, put together uh, like model airplanes and, and, and stuff like that. When you're the creator, you intricately know every detail. It makes sense. But this is great. He even knows it even deeper to a microscopic level. This is amazing. This is good stuff. You're going to like this. There's this thing called laminin. And laminin, uh, hold on for a second. Um, okay. Laminin is a, is a cell, let me get it right, is a cell adhesion molecule. Good with that? Okay. Cell adhesion molecule. It is a protein in everything that is living. It is a protein in everything that is living that holds cells together. It is the very thing, you know that we have hundreds of thousands of millions of cells within our body, but you know, they're, all, they're all independent of one another. A lam laminin or a cell adhesion molecule is the glue that holds all of that stuff together because if laminin didn't exist, we would just be a mess of cells all over the floor. Like we, we have to have something that glues all of this together. It's the nails that hold the building together. That Christ says, or Paul says in this in this verse, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is a picture of what laminin looks like. This is not a joke. That's cool. 
Now this is what a picture looks like. This is what Langdon looks like um, on a microscopic level. Christ holds all things together at a macro level, at a personal level, at a micro level, and at a microscopic level. Your creator knows you. So we have to do something with this Jesus. We really do. You can't just leave Jesus alone. I mean, if, if he is all that I said that he is, and now all that he says that he is, you can't remain neutral with Jesus. There's a lot of people who say, Jesus was a good teacher. He also was a person that said, you either follow me or things aren't going to work out so good for you. Right? I mean, he made some ultimatums. He said, you need to follow me honestly or you are going to live completely away from God in the eternal hell. And that's the truth. And that's the truth. And he knows that on a personal level. He knows your thoughts. So, why would we want to play around with that Jesus? Why would we want to reject that? Because you can. He allows you to do that. He gives you the freedom and free will to do that. He allows you to completely reject him. But we have to do something with this Jesus, and this is us, and it's beautiful. Um, he kind of repeats himself, and he goes on and says uh, in verse 18, he talks about the church, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, kind of repeating that from uh, verse 15, that in everything he might be preeminent or first, for in him, he repeats this, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of the cross. He is the producer. He's the one, the action agent. So not only did he create it, he came to die for it through his death on the cross to take on our sin, which is great. And here's where we are. Verse 21, I want us to get there. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, Doing evil deeds. Keep that up on the screen. You who were once alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. Now most of us understand that what's wrong with the world is that third thing, doing evil deeds. That's what's true. The, the reason why the world is so messed up is because there's evil people and that, that are doing evil things. That's the reason why the world is messed up. However, what Paul says is that there is a progression here. That the first problem is alienation. That we are outcasts. And then we become hostile in mind, which leads to evil deeds. It's not that the evil deeds just pop up one day, out of nowhere. But there is a progression. That there is alienation first. There is an outcast. Something is wrong with our soul. And then we turn and we get into hot. We turn and we say, I'm going to play with this in my mind. And things are going to, to happen and go badly. And then we take those to actions. For example... We're always, we're always pretty amazed on the news when some, some nerdy kid kind of goes postal on a school. That's not funny. But, I mean, think about it. The, the big stories are just this kid who was so nice just one day brought a gun to school and started shooting. Why did this happen? Think about that for a second. He was probably alienated. He was probably an outcast. Which he spent a lot of time alone in his thoughts. Spot a lot, spent a lot of time trying to figure out who he's going to blame for that alienation. It's obviously the jocks who are making fun of me, and, and so I'm going to get them one day. 
and you become hostile in your mind. It's obviously my teachers, they don't take care of me. It's obviously the principal, she doesn't look after me. And then those, the hostility of the mind becomes in, comes into action, and that's where evil deeds come out. And I know that's an extreme example, but think about it in the context. A wife who leaves her husband. I've never ever met a wife who left her husband who said, my husband loved me, he sacrificed me, he always did things for me, he just loved me unconditionally. I've never met that person. Ever. Have you? Usually, how a marriage relationship begins to break down is you live two independent lives. And it becomes, I don't think you love me. We didn't play the hostility and mind game. I just don't think he loves me. I bet he's cheating on me. I bet, I bet he's you know, doing all sorts of crazy stuff that I don't even know, know about. I bet he's spending our money on worthless stuff. I bet that he's doing all the, the hostility of mind takes over, and then opportunity takes its place when another man comes in and trips you off. And that's where the evil deed comes out. It starts with alienation, hostility of mind, and moves into evil deed. The husband who uh, gains a pornography habit. The husband who gains a pornography habit. It doesn't just start one day. It starts with alienation. I'm alone. I don't have accountability. My wife doesn't really care for me today. Alienation begins in hostility of mind, starts in the mind, just some kind of trigger, and then it goes on to evil action. The teenager who commits suicide doesn't happen just randomly. That person doesn't just wake up one day and say, I think I'm going to shoot myself in the head. It begins with alienation, hostility of mind, evil action. The college girl who develops an eating disorder. It's not just like one day she wakes up and says, I'm not going to eat anything today. It's, I feel alone. I feel embarrassed about who I am and my image. And the hostility of mind takes over and then action comes after that. Here's the problem with us in the South. is We just want to take care of the evil deeds. We just want to deal with uh, behavior modification. If we can just fix the very problem, if we can just get our kid to come to church, then that will fix everything. If we can just, uh, if, if my husband would just simply clean the bathroom, that will change our relationship. You know, if, if my husband, if my children would simply just do their homework, if they could simply just eat their vegetables, then that would fix everything. No? See, it's kind of like, I mean, See, I'm the master of this, and I'm preaching myself with this. I'm, I'm the captain of, um, you know, my, one of my chores. I used to pick the weeds. Anybody there with me? I mean, I used to pick the weeds in the garden or, you know, out in the front yard and the beds and stuff like that. I was the captain of going so fast. Who cares about the root? Just pick it up. Just, just, just kind of, you know, anybody else there with me? Just like, I just want to make it look good so my parents come outside and it looks okay for a couple days. And what's going to happen? That root is just going to keep on growing, Right? That's what's going to happen. I mean, it looks great. Your lawn looks awesome after you've mowed it. But two days later, the weeds spring up and it looks horrible again. Right? That's us. That's us in the South. We just think that behavior modification, getting rid of these evil deeds, is going to change our life. When really, we have to deal with the first principle, which is this alienation, which we can't even deal with. Some of us get smart. And we, I might like clear the seats with this one. So but this, is, this is something that I think is true. We might even get started that, you know, it's not just about the evil deeds. It's also about this hostility of mind. So what do we do in America? We medicate the mind. I have depression. So what am I going to do? I'm going to give myself drugs so I don't feel bad anymore. 
And really, all you're not taking care of the alienation problem. That is the root. Yes, it might curtail the deed. It might curtail what you, how it comes out into action. But you're not dealing with the root of the problem. Until we deal with the alienation problem, which we alone cannot fix, then blame and frustration will always be. Will always be. As the creation, we think that we can modify behavior and it will change life for a little while. And that's true. But it'll always come back. We think as the creation that we can calm our mind with all sorts of things. We think that if we had enough um, bathing salts to lay in the bathtub for a little while, things will just be better. And we just, we'll just calm down and just meditate for a little while and our mind will be at ease and we won't be so mad or angry. Things will be better. That's only for a little while. Only through the Creator can we change from being an outcast to being reconciled. And that's what this passage talks about. Only through the Creator can we go from an enemy of God to a friend of God. Only through the Creator can we go from chaos in our life to peace. We have to uproot the root. We have to take that out. We have to take care of the alienation problem. And here's how. Jesus does this. He says, I'm no longer going to be your enemy. I'm no longer going to leave you alone. We're no longer going to be an outcast. Because how I'm going to do that is I'm going to become just like one of you. I'm going to take on your burdens and give you my rest. I'm going to take on your sin. I'm going to give you my righteousness. And I'm going to die on the cross for you and love you. That's how the gospel works. And I'm going to invite you into this home or this, this creation that I have given. And it's for my glory, but I want to invite you in so that I might have a relationship and that you might have peace. That's the gospel. That's the beautiful picture of how our, how our lives works. Um, and what's amazing is that, that there is some, and I know you, in your life you might feel alienated from someone. You might feel alienated from your parent. You might feel alienated from your husband. Or you might feel alienated from your wife or someone in your life. Somebody is going that you feel alienated from, and that's how sin starts its path. Some of us in this room are, feel alienated simply from God, and we create uh, intellectual systems. And a lot of us do this in the South, too. We create intellectual systems so that we can play the sin game with God, and that we don't allow the truth that slaps us in the face. We don't allow the truth that, that really does tell us what we need to be hearing. We're worried about asking God the gotcha question. Ha-ha. You know, if I, I can ask a smart enough question about God, I don't have to follow him. If I can just somehow disprove in my mind that Jesus isn't who he says he is, then I don't have to worry about it. If I can somehow figure out all of God and actually know everything that he knows, then therefore I will follow him. But really what you're doing is you want to be the God of your spiritual system. And you want to be in charge. Here's my story. I felt that for a long time. That I wanted to know everything that God knows. I wanted to know everything about God that there was. I wanted to have control about God so that I could put him in a box and I could control him in my own life. But what, what God wants us to do is simply say, I want to be in control of your life. I want to be the one who gives you I want the one, I want to be the one who is the Lord of your life so that I can give you that peace. And although there are pieces of God that I do not understand 
and that he is bigger and grander, and there's parts of his mind that I will never understand. But I'm willing to serve him because he has reconciled his life to mine and has brought us in. Here's some um, practical tips as you think through this. Um, you might be saying, well, how do I change that? How do I, how do I change the alienation? How do I, how do I go from being hostile to being peaceful with God? Here's just a practical tip, and this is something that's very simple. God has written us a wonderful love letter called the Bible, and he has given it to us just to tell us exactly who he is. Read it. It's that simple. Sit down, make some time in your schedule, open it up, and read it. Go to find some way, find the first time it says Jesus in your Bible, which is going to be in the book of Matthew, and just start reading. And start reading about who Jesus is. Just start reading. That's all I want you to do. That's, I mean, if you're, that, that's the practical tip from the sermon of today. I just want you to start reading your Bible. You want to know how to get out of the alienation? You want to know how to uproot the problem? Start reading about who God is. And know that that is perfect truth. And then if you want to, we have these things called huddles. And huddles are simply two or three people meeting together to read the Bible. So I want you to do it by yourself in your house, make some time. I also want you to get together with a couple people and read together. It's not that hard. You don't have to have a, you don't have to have a theological degree to read the Bible together. You don't have to have a special Bible teacher. You don't have to have a pastor. You just need to have two or three people to get together and read the Bible together. Do that. We have a couple resources over on that table. We have a book called The Divine Mentor, which is a, a great book that shows you how to do this on a more simple level. If you want one, uh, we, can, we can get you one. Um, and, then, and then simply um, talk to someone about this. If you're struggling through this and say, Charlie, I am there. I, I need to get rid of the root of this problem. I need to be found. I feel like the alien. I feel like my life is falling apart. I feel like God is letting me go. I guarantee you that God is holding you together at the most microscopic level. And if you want to talk to somebody about that, um, please do that. And come up and talk to me about that. And talk, to, uh, talk to Joel or talk to Andy. It really doesn't even matter. Talk to somebody about what is going on in your heart. But make those practical steps. There's a lot of time after today's service, either right after it or we can hang out at lunch. I want to see you there. Um, but come and talk to someone about it.